Well, this morning, as we come to God's word, we, as Steve had mentioned, we're going to return to the Gospel of John. And as we continue our slow march through this gospel, we find ourselves once again in John chapter 1. Now, last time we were, in the, last time we were here, we looked at John's prologue to his gospel, which is contained in verses 1 through 18. And in the prologue, John lays out the framework or the basis, really, that he fleshes out in the rest of his book. And by way of reminder, the purpose of John's writing is to show that Jesus is God and that Jesus is the only source of salvation. Now, John does this by choosing specific instances and discourses in the life of Christ that point to different aspects of his character that can only be attributed to God. And, <clears throat> and by doing this, he is using these as proofs or evidences for his claim about Jesus. And we come to one of those claims this morning. Now, any good author understands that there is always, there's always more than one character to a really good story. Stories in general will, will center around a main protagonist, but that main character must have compelling secondary characters. Now, these characters can be a sidekick, a love interest, a best friend, or even an enemy. And the importance of these characters is how they help to develop the main character and how they help to progress the story. These secondary characters, they seem unimportant, but they're actually crucial to the storytelling process. Now, a good example of this is in the classic novels of the Lord of the Rings. One, one of the main characters is a hobbit by the name of Frodo. But what really makes and develops Frodo's character is his ever-loyal and trusty companion, Samwise. Samwise, the secondary character, is the one who's always on the side. He's never in the limelight, but he's always there supporting and promoting the main character. Frodo would not be the same without him. Another example would be Sherlock Holmes and his sidekick, Watson. A biblical example would be Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. Jonathan, the one who by blood would have been next in line for the throne of Israel, he plays secondary character to God's chosen future king, David. Jonathan is David's confidant. He's his best friend. He's his support and his help. Jonathan lived in the shadow of David willingly, and lovingly, and never did anything to put the focus on himself. And he contributes significantly to the development of David and to the progression of that narrative. Well, this morning, we're going to spend some time with another secondary character. And John uses this secondary character, like all great authors do, as a way to develop our understanding of and point to the main character. And with that in mind, let's read our uh, verses this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 19 through 37. 19 through 37. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. 
Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. John's prologue in verses 6 through 8, the gospel writer introduced us to the secondary character of John the Baptist. In these verses, we learn that John the Baptist was sent by God to bear witness to the light that all might believe through him. The light being Jesus, the eternal Logos who took flesh upon himself and tabernacled with us. The apostle John gave us a glimpse of this witness to Jesus in his introduction. And now in our text this morning, he returns to that witness and he fleshes him out. This leads us to some key questions at the beginning to help us frame these verses within their proper context. First, we want to answer the question of, actually, where does this narrative fit in the timeline of the life of Christ? Well, verses 19 through 37 occur over the course of three days. And those three days occurred sometime after Jesus' baptism. As John the Baptist, he recounts Jesus' baptism in the past tense when he's talking about it here in John's gospel. And we know from the other gospels, the synoptic gospels, that immediately after Jesus' baptism, he was led into the desert where he fasted for 40 days and was tempted by Satan. And after the temptation in the desert following his baptism, Jesus returns to the same area where John the Baptist was ministering. And that is where our narrative picks up. This is after Jesus' temptation, but before he first calls some of his disciples. So Jesus is just at the beginning stages of his public ministry. His first public miracle will not take place until we get to John chapter 2 with the miracle at the wedding in Cana. Another question is, who is this man that the Apostle John uses as a witness to Christ? Who is this John the Baptist? And we could spend a lot of time here just looking at his life. However, that is not the focus of the text this morning. So I'm just going to give a brief overview of his life just to help us gain a picture of who he is before we dive further into the text. John the Baptist was born to Zechariah, a priest, and Elizabeth, his wife. They were both too old to have children. God had closed Elizabeth's womb past normal childbearing age. And we know that God miraculously opens her womb, allows her to conceive a child who they name John. Now, John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins. They were born within months of each other. And after his birth, in the scriptures, we hear nothing of John the Baptist until he comes bursting on the scene as an adult. 
And when he does, he's this guy who's living in the desert, eating honey and locusts, wearing a garment of camel's hair. And in the narrative of the New Testament, he, he appears in the desert suddenly calling Israel to come and be baptized in the Jordan River in preparation for the coming Messiah. It's in the midst of this ministry that our narrative picks up. So with that, as a brief historical context, let's look once again at this interaction in verses 19 through 28 between John and the Jewish religious leaders. He says then, this is the testimony of John. The Jews sent priests and Levites to, from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And they ask him, are you the Christ? And he says, no. Are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you the prophet? He says, no. And so they ask him, who are you? And he says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now John's public ministry is causing quite a stir amongst the Jews. God had promised a Messiah would come and then did not speak to the Israelites for 400 years. So if you imagine 400 years of silence and then out of the desert, there is this man who is claiming to be sent by God, calling Israel to come to the Jordan and be baptized. Now to be clear, that in and of itself would have stood out because baptism was not a normal part of the Jewish religion for ethnic Jews. Really, the only baptism that the Jews knew was for Gentile proselytes who wanted to convert to Judaism. So for John to call Jews to come and be baptized in the Jordan River really would have been shocking, especially to these Jewish religious leaders. And this man, John, was not anyone they knew. He was outside their fold. He was not part of their group, yet he was claiming to be sent by God. So they decide to send some of their own to John and try to find out his identity. More specifically, they're wondering if this man is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one from the Old Testament scriptures who would come, and in their minds would come and free Israel from Roman oppression, usher in the kingdom of God, bringing judgment to the Gentiles. So they come to John and they ask, who are you? John Knowing what they're really asking answers that he is not the Christ. He makes that abundantly clear. He is not the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Now these Jewish religious leaders are confused, so they start running down the list of those that they knew were promised in the Old Testament. They come, they ask him, are you Elijah? Well, Malachi 4, 5, and 6 promised that Elijah would return before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He says he's not Elijah. Then they ask him, well, then are you the prophet? Well, God had promised Moses in Deuteronomy 18 that he would send another prophet like Moses whom the people would listen to. And John responds that he is not the promised prophet. Well, they don't know what to think at this point. You can, you can almost hear the exasperation in their voice as they ask him once again, who are you then? We can't go back to the Pharisees without an answer. What do, you, what do you have to say about yourself? They want a straight answer from him. So John answers them by quoting the prophet Isaiah. John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And we know from these verses that John the Baptist is then the fulfillment of this prophet or of this promise in Isaiah 
of a voice who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. This is actually what the angel had told his dad, Zechariah, about him before he was born. And the angel tells Zechariah in Luke 1, 16 and 17, he says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So then this was at least a partial fulfillment of that promise in Malachi chapter 4. John the Baptist was not literally Elijah returned, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah as a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Now the Jewish religious leaders would have known what John was referring to. They understood the implication. What they didn't understand is why, and they asked him if he's not the Christ If he's not Elijah, if he's not the prophet, why was he baptizing? In other words, what was the purpose of this baptism? And initially, John, he doesn't answer them. He tells them that he may baptize with water, but there's someone among them that they don't even know who is greater than he. Remember, at this point, John had already baptized Jesus, so he knew the truth of who Jesus was. These men did not. One greater than himself was among them, and they did not even know him or see him. That leaves us with the same question, though, to answer, and that question is the one the Jewish religious leaders asked, and that was, what was the purpose of John's baptism? So I want to take just a few minutes to to look at that and to really understand the full purpose of John's baptism, baptism. We have to look at all the gospel accounts, And from all the gospel accounts, we can really see three reasons or purposes for John's baptism. Now, the first, the first is that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance in order to prepare the hearts of the people of Israel for the coming Messiah. And we get that clearly from Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 3 in verses 1 and 2. And then in verse 5, we read, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So this was a baptism to symbolize a cleansing from sin. This was intended to prepare the people's hearts to be ready to receive the Messiah. So this, however, is not the only purpose. That is one purpose behind John's baptism. Another, a second purpose for John's baptism is once again given to us in Matthew chapter 3. And it's in verses 13 through 15. And we read those, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So in order for Jesus to actively obey God on our behalf, he perfectly fulfilled all that we could not. He was baptized by John on our behalf, even though he had no need of repentance. Just as he bore the punishment for sins upon himself, even though he was without sin. Baptism was the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Death and resurrection were the end. And all along the way, in between those two, Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not. 
And this moment then of Jesus being baptized by John, this moment was a part of that process of Jesus' active obedience on our behalf. So not only was it a baptism of repentance to prepare the people for the coming Messiah, it was part of Jesus' active obedience on our behalf. But lastly, we can see a final purpose for John's baptism in our own narrative this morning. John says, John the Baptist says in verses 30 through 34, This is he of whom I said, speaking about Jesus, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So then another purpose for John's baptism was to clearly reveal the identity of Jesus to John so that he could point others to Christ. God told John that the one on whom the Spirit descended and remained was the Son of God. So John, prior to this, even prior to baptizing Jesus, John knew in his mind that Jesus was that one, but, but which was made clear in Matthew's gospel account. However, John did not experientially know because he had not yet experienced or seen the Spirit descend and remain. So in that moment then, in Jesus' baptism, it was confirmed to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Son of God, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And with that confirmation in his mind, he can now point others to Jesus. So John the Baptist then, he came in the spirit and power of Elijah as the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And this was done through a baptism of repentance for the people of Israel. And this same baptism was used to reveal to him the clear identity of the Messiah so he could point others to Jesus. That is the identity of our witness this morning. And once it was confirmed to John the Baptist that Jesus was the Messiah, what did he proclaim to those around him? What did he say about Jesus? And that's what we have recorded in verses 29 uh, through 37, really in verses 29, 35, and 36. So in verse 29 he says, And the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 35 and 36, The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. So after it was confirmed to him that Jesus was the Messiah, when he sees Jesus, so when Jesus returns from his 40 days in the desert and John the Baptist sees Jesus, he proclaims to those around him, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And how do John's disciples respond to this proclamation? Well, when the two disciples hear this proclamation from John, they leave John 
and they go follow Jesus. John's purpose was to prepare the way for the Messiah and to point people to him. And right away we start seeing this purpose fulfilled as these two disciples leave John and go to Jesus. And this is the same picture of John's ministry that we get in John 3. When John says those famous words about Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. John understood what his ministry was always meant to be. Now the real question we need to ask this morning then is what do we do with this narrative? Where do we, where do we go from here? So for the rest of this morning, we've worked our way so at least we understand the context and the details of this narrative. For the rest of this morning, I want to endeavor then to use this text in the same way or for the same purpose that the Apostle John wrote it. Now this narrative about John the Baptist occurs between the prologue to his gospel in the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he calls disciples to himself. The Apostle John uses John the Baptist as this secondary character to move us from his prologue to Christ. Now notice that once these two disciples, once they leave John the Baptist and go to Jesus, in the narrative, John the Baptist disappears. He's just gone, like, like he doesn't exist anymore. After serving his purpose narratively, he disappears from the scene. And then from then on, all the focus is then on Jesus. This is how the gospel writer, he actually uses some of his characters in his book. For example, in John chapter 3, we have this familiar narrative of the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. But just as in our narrative this morning, there's that a point in the conversation where suddenly it seems like Nicodemus has just disappeared. He's just gone. Like they're talking, and Nicodemus is just never mentioned again in a transition to fully focus on Christ. It's like John, the gospel writer, John the apostle, he uses him for this purpose of bringing that conversation to Christ, and then he, he takes him away, and he keeps the focus on Jesus. And that's what he does with John the Baptist here this morning. So that's what we are going to do this morning. We're going to allow John the Baptist, we're going to allow this witness used by the Apostle John to point us to Christ. We're going to allow this John the Baptist, or, or sorry, John the Apostle to use the secondary character in his gospel to point us to a specific understanding of the identity of the main character who is really Jesus. And we get that from the proclamation of John the Baptist that we just read when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. And from this then, from this proclamation of the Apostle John's witness, we will get our main takeaway from this morning, and that is since Jesus is the Lamb of God, we have a firm foundation from which to love others. Since Jesus is the Lamb of God, we have a firm foundation from which to love others. Well, first... First, we must dig deeper to understand what he means when he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. In other words, in what way is Jesus the Lamb of God? 
Now, the first clue we have is found in the second half of verse 29, where John says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that, ta- that places the Lamb then that he's talking about in the context of taking away sin, which the Jewish people of that day would have instantly understood to be referring to the sacrificial system in the law. So that is where we are going to turn first. And we're going to look at, we're going to start in Exodus. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of Exodus chapter 12. To help us to begin to flesh out and get a full understanding of the breadth and the depth of this term, Lamb of God. So in the first 11 verses, chapter 12, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none, and shall none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. And, the, and in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So while the Jews were slaves in Egypt, God's deliverance, as we know, included 10 plagues to show the Egyptians the power of God. And the the final plague was the angel of death that would come and kill every firstborn child in the land. And in the midst of the wrath of God poured out, God provided a protection for the Jews. Now this protection was through the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Now notice that this lamb was to be without spot, or blemish. They were to sacrifice this lamb, they were to kill it, and they were to put the, lamb, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost to the house. Then when the angel of death came, he would pass over every house that had the covering of the blood of the lamb. So the blood of the spotless lamb provided covering from the wrath of God. Now, this understanding of a blood sacrifice of animals as a covering for sin carried into the entire sacrificial system that we have clearly laid out for us in the book of Leviticus. Now, to be clear, the sacrifice wasn't always a lamb in every case, but the general picture, though, is a blood covering for sin, something to take the death that is deserved for sin. That's the picture we get And that's the picture that they would have had of lambs in association with the sacrificial system. Well, in God's kindness, he doesn't leave us there. As God's revelation progresses, we get a better understanding of this sacrificial lamb of God. And we get that from the prophet Isaiah. 
We get that from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. We read Isaiah 53, verses 6 through 12. Isaiah 53, verses 6 through 12. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, that he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. In in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is prophesying about the servant of the Lord. Really, we understand to be the coming Messiah. And Isaiah identifies then, he takes this understanding of the Lamb of God as not just a physical animal, but as a person. This man, this servant of the Lord would be sinless, yet would bear the sin of many, making a way for them to be counted as righteous. So the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was meant to point to this one perfect sacrifice to this lamb of God, the servant of the Lord, the coming Messiah. And with that understanding in mind, then we come to our text this morning. The lamb of God, pictured by the sacrificial system and promised to be fulfilled in the coming Messiah, is identified by John the Baptist as Jesus of Nazareth. He repeats it twice on two different days in our narrative. John the Baptist proclaims Jesus as the Lamb of God, the one whose blood would provide a covering for sin, a protection from, and satisfaction for the wrath of God. Now this is something that Jesus also understood about himself. He made it clear to his disciples when they celebrated the Passover the night before his crucifixion. In that last supper, he he institutes the new covenant. He proclaims this to his disciples in Luke chapter 20, verses 19 and 20. He says, and he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to him, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this is, cup that is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. Jesus understood that he was the Lamb of God who would freely give himself as a sacrifice atoning for the sins of the world. 
And even after Jesus ascends to the Father, the New Testament authors understood this about Jesus as well. Paul, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. And then he says this about Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul calls Jesus the Passover lamb. And Peter says this about him in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter understood that Jesus is the sinless sacrifice, the perfect spotless lamb that paid our ransom so that we could be free from sin. Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament. And we get an even clearer picture of that in the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews makes this point abundantly clear in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10. I'm going to read some selected verses from Hebrews chapter 9 and 10 as the author develops our understanding of this. And in Hebrews chapter 9, He writes this in verses 23 through 26. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And then he says in chapter 10 verses 1 through 4, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And then he writes in verses 12, through 14 of chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The sacrificial system of the Old Testament was a physical and material shadow or copy of what was to come. It was a constant reminder of sin and the impossibility to cover our own sin. It was a constant reminder that we needed a Savior, that we needed a perfect sacrifice, that no physical bull, goat, or lamb could ever provide. And then Jesus, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, comes and he stands in our place, becoming the perfect sacrifice for sin but that we need but do not deserve. He stands in our place fulfilling all that the sacrificial system was created to represent. 
He fulfills it all in himself, offering himself once for all, making a way for God's elect to be accounted as righteous. That, however, that, however, is not all that Scripture has to say about the Lamb of God. Scripture also makes it clear that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, was always, was always God's plan. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we read this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, we read, He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then lastly, in Revelation, verses 13, verse 8. In Revelation, verses 13, verse 8, we read, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. To be really clear, this was always God's plan. This, this isn't plan B. It's not like God created the entire universe perfect, without sin, and then when Adam and Eve sinned, he had to abandon plan A for his backup plan. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. He came and offered himself as the perfect atoning sacrifice for sin by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's plan of redemption for mankind was always the plan from before the world began. But not only was Jesus the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, revealed at the perfect time to carry out this plan of redemption, but he will continue to be the Lamb of God for all of eternity. The Apostle John gets visions in the book of Revelation of what is to come. And I think what is fascinating in Revelations 5, verses 6 through 8. Revelations 5, verses 6 8. We read, in between the throne, so he's getting a vision of heaven, between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. This, this vision that John gets is after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended to the right hand of the father, the father having completed the work of redemption. John gets a glimpse into heaven, and how does he see Jesus? As the Lamb of God, as though it had been slain. 
This is an eternal reminder of the glory of Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, promised in the Old Testament sacrificial system, fulfilled in time and space in the physical coming of the God-man Jesus Christ, who redeemed his people with his own blood, securing for us an eternal redemption. See and understand this vision of Christ as we hear once again the words of John the Baptist this morning when he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, how should we respond then to the truth of Jesus as the Lamb of God? How should we respond to the truth of Jesus as the Lamb of God? Well, the author of Hebrews actually helps us with that in Hebrews chapter 10. After he explains Jesus, the Lamb of God, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, he writes the following in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. He says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And we can see three responses to this truth in these verses. First, in verse 22, we are told to draw near. So because of the past, present, and future work of the Lamb of God on our behalf, he has opened a way for us to enter into the presence of God with confidence. We no longer have the curtain that separates us from God. We no longer need a human mediator to go to God on our behalf. Through the blood of Christ, we can enter into his presence with confidence. Verse 22 tells us that we have a full assurance of faith. In other words, we don't have to wonder if we are in. We don't have to wonder if we are accepted by God. We can be confident that we are accepted by God through Christ. Here is the truth. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God, past, present, and future, we are as accepted by God as we will ever be. Through Christ, we are fully accepted. We can be confident and assured of our salvation, not because of anything we have done, not because of anything we could ever do, but because of the Lamb of God. You cannot earn God's acceptance. You have been accepted because of Jesus. Also, if you're a child of God, then you can't lose his acceptance either. You didn't earn it, and you can't lose it. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world 
realized in this life, fully fulfilled in the life to come. And that is good news for us this morning. Whether we realize it or not, we oftentimes live life in this world as if we must earn or if we could lose God's acceptance. And the lens we often view God's acceptance or rejection is through the circumstances of life. Our hearts tend to be like Job's friends. If things are going the way we want in this life, then we view that as we have God's favor and acceptance. When trials and suffering come, then we must be experiencing his displeasure or his rejection of us. But the truth this morning is that because Jesus is the Lamb of God, if you are a Christian this morning, if you have repented of your sins and put your trust in Christ, you are as accepted as you will ever be. No circumstance, no circumstance in this life changes that. Let me repeat that again. No circumstance in this life can change your acceptance this morning as a child of God. Loved and accepted by the Heavenly Father through Jesus, the Lamb of God. But not only are we called to draw near, we are called in verse 23 to hold fast. We are to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, our firm foundation. Our hope is in, even as this verse says after that, in the faithfulness of God. If our relationship with God was determined in eternity past, realized in the present, and secured for all of eternity, what reason would we have to lose hope? Jesus, as the Lamb of God, past, present, and future, affirms for us his faithfulness, which gives us hope in him and the ability to stand firm in the faith. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God, we are standing upon a firm foundation that cannot be shaken. Nothing in this world can cause this foundation to fail us. And this reminds me of these words and familiar words for us in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, think Lamb of God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemned. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, because Jesus is the Lamb of God, I am sure that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because Jesus is the Lamb of God, nothing can separate us from him. We are fully accepted in him and we can stand firm in the faith knowing that God is faithful and we will be with him in the life to come no matter the circumstances of this life. Draw near to God with full assurance of salvation, holding fast to the faith as we stand on the sure foundation of Jesus Christ. But not only are we to draw near, not only are we to hold fast, but we're also called in verse 24 and 25 to consider. What are we to consider? He says, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. How to stir one another up to love and good works. Just understand, uh, to get a little bit of flavor on this, the word translated stir up usually means to stir to anger, to be irritated or to be incensed. It has a stronger sense of meaning than we probably normally associate with it. This is actually an odd use for this word because it normally has a negative connotation. For example, this is used, the word that's used in Acts 15 verse 39. And in that passage, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready for their second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to take Mark. And Paul doesn't because Mark had bailed on him the last time they went out. And Acts 15.39 says, And there arose a sharp disagreement. That's that same word. A sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. So this sharp disagreement, by the way, led to Paul and Barnabas not going together on this missionary journey. So the author then in Hebrews intentionally uses this word to give some force behind what he is trying to communicate. This isn't a passive, reserved sort of stirring up. Maybe a better way to say it is that we are to provoke one another to love and good works. The Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 19, that we love because he first loved us and that he demonstrated his love toward us through Jesus, the Lamb of God. So it is this kind of sacrificial, intentional, pursuing kind of love that puts others before ourselves that we must provoke in one another. Our relationships with each other within this body should be characterized by stirring up each other to love others in this way. And the natural outflow of this, the natural outflow of this is good works. But how are we to do this? How are we to stir one another up to love and good works? Well, following this call to stir one another up, the author of Hebrews says in verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So what we can see is that we have to be intentional with our presence. If we are going to stir one another up, if we're going to provoke each other into love and good works, we have to be intentional with our presence. The author says to not neglect meeting together. Now this whole thing occurs within the context of the Christian community within the local church. The only way we can stir one another up is by being, being intentional to be there. We can't do this passively. We can't do this without the intensity 
of relationship. Yes, we do need to gather in a corporate sense as a body of believers like we are this morning. We need to gather corporately on a regular basis and in that gathering we develop and foster these kinds of relationships. However, this should naturally lead to personal and deep relationships with one another. Now, I know this has been more challenging during our time of COVID, both in a corporate and in a personal sense. And one of the things that God has really been teaching me during this time, that there is many ways, many different ways that you can be there with people. Now, understand during this time, there are different comfort levels and there's different risks for some people to gather corporately for worship. So please hear me rightly. As much as you are able, as much as you are able with whatever your comfort level is, encourage you to be present for corporate worship. On a personal relationship level, ideally that would mean physical presence, but with the COVID protocols as they are, I know that isn't always possible. We can't always be physically with someone, but there are a lot of things that we can do. We can call, we can text, we can FaceTime, email, send a card. We can be intentional in reaching out to people the best way that we can. Now, to be clear, in the long term, this should not become a substitute for when we can physically be present, but we can include these. I want you to think about it this way. We can include these kinds of connecting in our arsenal. In other words, be intentional with your presence. Don't use this time that we are currently living in as an excuse for a lack of intentional, meaningful connection with other people. The only way we can provoke one another to love and good works is by being intentional with our presence and when we are there, to be intentional to encourage with our actions and our words. To encourage one another. Jesus, the Lamb of God, past, present, and future, places us in community with other believers. And as we are secure in our relationship with God, holding fast to our faith because of his faithfulness, we can then, right, that's our horizontal relationship. Once we are secure in our, our, it's our vertical relationship, once we are secure in our vertical relationship, we can then be intentional to gather with each other both corporately and privately and encourage one another, provoking each other to love and good works. Jesus is the Lamb of God. What a glorious truth for us this morning. And I pray that as you meditate on this truth, and its implications that you are stirred up, that you are provoked to love in good works. I pray that you are encouraged to be intentional to corporately gather with God's people and to be intentional in deep relationships with one another. Since Jesus is the Lamb of God, we have a firm foundation from which to love others. Let us pray.